Welcome to our podcast series, Talking with Traders, hosted by expert trader Garth McKenzie in London, from where he's interviewing various guests on the topic of trading. Welcome to season four of Talking with Traders with me, Garth McKenzie. It's been a lengthy hiatus since we completed season three of this series, so it's good to be back. Thank you to IG Markets for once again coming on board to fund and sponsor this podcast. Their involvement is hugely valuable, and we're proud to have such an award-winning CFD provider alongside us. In this season, I'll welcome back some of our most popular guests from previous seasons to get their updated views on the markets, and I'll also bring in some new guests too. I'll be asking them pertinent questions about how they trade the market and where they're seeing opportunities in the global trading and investing arena. The idea is that you, the listener, gain some valuable insight and education from these market professionals that may be of use in your own trading and investing. So with that in mind, let's get straight into this week's episode of Talking with Traders. For this episode of Talking with Traders, this is the third episode in the fourth season of Talking with Traders. I'm delighted to welcome back the finance ghost. Uh, you would have probably seen his work on Twitter, on Daily Maverick, on Insconnect. He's all over the place. He was with us approximately a year ago on this podcast, and he's back again. Welcome, Mr. Ghost. Garth, thank you so much for having me back, especially. It's it's really awesome. Yeah, it's, it's incredible to... Uh, Follow your story. You know, last year when we spoke, you you literally were that ghost. You were the guy working late nights, uh, doing the finance ghost as a side hustle, and you had a, a full time corporate job during the day. Um, and a lot has happened since then. Tell us about the year that's passed since then. So I'm still working late at night. Um, <laughs> I feel like I'm closer to being a ghost as a result. Uh, I feel like I've aged a bit in the past year, but uh, yeah, the, the journey into entrepreneurship is definitely one of very long hours and uh, there's no one to give you leave because you work for yourself but it has been an amazing journey and and yeah I think we spoke around about a year ago and sometimes I still have to pinch myself on what the last year has been I mean I think at that stage I'd probably just started writing for Investors Monthly I think I can remember my first cover story and it was like the biggest deal in my life ever yeah and luckily you know a lot of hard work and a lot of a lot of lucky breaks later um you know I'm writing a, a weekly column now for Financial Mail in the main magazine still writing lots for Investors Monthly um I'm the managing editor of Insconnect which goes out every morning um I've very recently started writing for Business Maverick um I still do some collaborative work with companies like you know Velocity Group on IT related stories uh, there's the Magic Markets podcast, which you know a number of people have hopefully heard of. Uh, we've literally just launched Magic Markets Premium, which is very exciting. Uh, my weekly mailer, Ghost Mail, has grown, you know, really nicely. And uh, the whole idea there is actually just to make it fun, just to entertain people on a Tuesday morning, and to teach them something, hopefully, about the markets, share some some anecdotal stories. So yeah, I have a lot of fun with it. And it's still a lot of hard work, but it's been an amazing 12 months, I must say. Yeah, well, it, it is incredible. I mean, I follow your work very closely. I get your ghost mail every Tuesday morning, and it's I, I thoroughly enjoy reading it. Um, I generally wait until lunchtime when I've got a little bit of a break, and then I, I read it, and I find your style of writing amazing. It's always humorous, but it's always incredibly informative. And what I really find amazing with everything that you're doing is that you know, they always say, um, you either get quality or quantity, but seldom do you get both. What I find with your work is that it's it's both. You're, you're putting out an immense amount of content, but it's good quality stuff. Your podcasts are amazing. Um, I've, I've recently signed up now to your new product, um, uh, Magic Markets Premium. I listened to the Microsoft uh, podcast that you did with Mohammed Nala this week. Excellent, phenomenal content. So in educational, really, really good stuff. Um, you, you're getting it right. I mean, with quality and quantity. Thanks, Garth. I mean, it's all very kind words. And yeah, I guess I just get on with it every week. There's a lot I have to do every week. And <laughs> if I sit and spend too much time thinking about it, then it won't get done. And yeah, I mean, I went into this gig because I love writing. So I guess I'm lucky in that now I get to do what I love. I love writing. I love the markets. So now I can do them both. And it's a very lucky position to be in. So I'm just very grateful for what has happened. Yeah, well, super. Well, keep it up. It's it's really amazing. But tell us also a little bit about your year from an investment standpoint. 
you you've been very open and honest on Twitter about everything that you do also in your um, your ghost mail every week and in the podcast and etc I mean you're very very open and honest about all of the investments some of them have gone phenomenally well for you and some have not gone so well I know your gold exposure has caused you a little bit of headaches in the last year so I mean let's just talk a bit about that the year that's gone by uh, from an investment standpoint point what has worked for you and what has not worked Yes, I mean, you know, ghosts are nothing if not transparent historically. Mm. So I've always tried to uh, make sure that uh, people know, you know, the wins and the losses. In general, I think that social media has this bias towards people only posting their wins. And I specifically go out of my way to actually post the stuff that doesn't go well, because I think it's a little bit boring to say, oh, you know, this went incredibly well. This is up 200%. This is up 300%. That's cool. But what can you learn from it? I think you learn from your losses. I mean, I have nowhere near the experience in the markets of guys like you, but something I've realized without doubt in the past couple of years, because, you know, for people who aren't familiar, my background is actually in corporate finance. I did a lot of investment banking, mergers and acquisitions, that kind of stuff for, you know, five, six years, and then a corporate strategy gig for a couple of years. So my background is a little bit unusual. Um, you know, I always laugh a little bit about being on talking with traders because I'm actually more of an investor. Um, and I think I've learned that, especially in the last year, actually, I'm less of a trader than I even thought I was. And I wasn't giving myself too much credit on the trading side. So, you know, some of the stuff that didn't go so well this year, um, gold, absolutely. But again, I think I bought it with a long term view. Um, it was done at a time where you know, I think it was around the time of the second wave. I actually had COVID at the time in December last yeah. year. So it was not a good time to be buying gold shares. Right. But you know, I was a little bit worried that the world might have a bit of a wobbly again, and I wanted to just put a little bit of an inflation hedge and a calamity hedge, I suppose, into my portfolio. I'm not sure gold has worked at all as an inflation hedge this year. I mean, we're sitting in a high inflation environment and gold has not done well. So yeah. I'm still sort of, I've, I have trimmed some of that exposure, definitely. Um, I'm going to keep a fair amount of it. I think that, you know, if you read a lot of portfolio theory stuff, over a few years and over an extended period, adding something like gold to a portfolio generally is not a terrible idea. So I'm learning as I go and I'm kind of holding on to, to what I've got in that space. And I've got um, you know a variety of the mines, including something like DRD, which is probably the most leveraged play on gold you can, you can actually have. Yeah. So I think one of the mistakes I made and, and one of the biggest lessons I've learned in the last year, without a doubt actually, is position sizing. If right. you go in too hard too quickly, you just don't leave yourself any flexibility to fix that up in terms of improving your in price. And, and that's something that I'm now extremely conscious of. Whenever I make any changes to my portfolio now, I'm thinking very, very firmly about position sizing. And I guess that people have different approaches. You know, you get the high conviction investors where they've got like 40 or 50% sitting in, you know, one stock sometimes. And I always just think to myself, geez, you've got to be really backing yourself and you've, you've got to believe that there isn't the risk of, 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 shall we say, random outcomes when you're doing stuff like that. So for me, you know, I prefer to have positions. I think my biggest positions are probably, you know, like three and a half or 4% of the portfolio. So it's almost like a build your own ETF kind of situation. Right. And, and then just let it run. Um, that's kind of where I've, where I've eventually gotten to. So gold was one of them, you know, this year that didn't go so fantastically well. Um, another one was EOH. In the end, I didn't really lose any money. And it's interesting because I think gold was a trade that I put on at a time where I shouldn't have been doing anything, firstly. Don't trade when you have COVID, top tip. Um, and in general, I think I didn't understand gold well enough. I still don't really think I do, but I'm learning as I go. On EOH, though, I did the fundamental work because that's that's what I do. You know, nice. you unpick the balance sheet, understand the financials. That's actually my game. So at the time I entered the trade, EOH looked really interesting because they had some big IP businesses they could sell. Yes, I understood the debt. You know, there was reasonable disclosure at that time. And in I went. And by the time they reported their numbers, you know, for their next reporting period, I looked at this and thought, okay, so the debt has gone sideways, not down, which is mm. not great. Mm. The disclosures are not great anymore in terms of understanding how much money this IP business makes that they are still looking to sell. And again, every time an update came out, it just looked a bit a bit worse. And then suddenly that share price started plummeting. I don't know how much you still watch the SA market, but I mean, DOH went down into like the mid fours. Yeah. Um, and by that stage, again, my position size was too big on the speculative play. So I thought, you know, given EOH's history, and, and let's be honest, the JSC's ability to leak information, 
I wondered what I didn't know and uh, that other people maybe did about this company. So I trimmed, you know, I, I ate some of that loss further down. Right. And then, you know, the technicals took over your world mm-hmm. and uh, this thing jumped up and it came back to the mid sevens, which is kind of the, the fair value that I had it at. And so I actually sold out of the whole position. Um, I think it was about last week. So I took a bit of a bath on, on EOH, but again, I learned some stuff along the way. I've definitely learned a lot about technicals, you know, the catching a falling knife yeah. kind of vibe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, I put all of that up to school fees. So no regrets. Um, no, I lie. I regret selling Sassel. I made a lot of money on Sassel, but man, I could have made so much more. Mm. Uh, other than that, no regrets. <laughs> <laughs> and offshore, I mean, you you cover quite a lot of offshore content on your podcasts with with Mohammed Nala. Um, phenomenal content there. You've done pretty well, from what I can gather, on some of your offshore holdings. I mean, I know you. I mentioned the Microsoft uh, podcast now, and you mentioned that in the podcast that you you have a position there, and that stock just continues to go into the top right hand corner of the chart. So you've obviously done well on something like that. Um, where else have you done nicely on the offshore market in the last year? Yeah, so I mean, look, let's face it, you, you had to really get it wrong to not make money offshore in, in the last year. I think uh, a lot of people believe the last year came down to skill, but there was definitely a lot of just luck. I mean, this market has been kind of hard not to make money in yeah. if you just buy and hold, I think. Mm-hmm. So having said that, I mean, you know, there were certain themes that I, I got right, I think, gaming, you know, stuff like NVIDIA, AMD, some of the other gaming stocks. Um, I bought Ford in the absolute depths of despair last year. So that's been beautiful. Most people don't realize this, but year to date, Ford has actually outperformed Tesla. Not if you go further back than that, I appreciate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But year to date, Ford has actually outperformed Tesla this year. So that's yeah. kind of the benefit of buying the, you know, the more humble valuation stock sometimes, um, as opposed to the big flashy growth stock. So yeah, I've had some good winners offshore. I mean, I've had some good winners on the JSC as well. Something like transaction capital has been excellent for me. So, you know, there have been some, I think, some really good returns, some really good trades. Um, and it's mainly where I invest thematically and I actually do what I should be doing, which is taking a longer term view, not trying to be too cute. I think that's what I've learned about myself in the last year is, uh, you know, every every trader or investor has got to find a style that works. I mean, you know yeah. that better than anyone. And I continue yeah. to learn a lot from guys like you along this topic. Mm. And I think for me, the style that sticks is to find the compounders, find the stuff that I can buy and hold. And if it drops 5%, I actually don't care because in reality, I'm buying this thing for three to five years and I know what it's capable of. And if I'd stuck to my knitting on stuff like that, I wouldn't have sold Sassel and I would be sitting in a very different situation mm. on a stock like that. So yeah, I mean, as you know, in this game, there's always something to learn, right? Yeah, no, there is. I mean, we're constantly learning. You never know it all. And just as soon as you think you do, you're you're generally about to be humbled. So it's, it's a constant learning game. I liked what you said there about finding a style of trading or investing that suits your personality, because that is so true. And we're all different. Um, and I see it with certain traders that I I know guys who are, you know, perhaps a bit more racy in the way that they live their life. They like motorbikes and fast cars and things. They trade like that as well. And then there's guys like yourself, I think, who is, you know, a bit more grounded, I guess, a bit more conservative. And I suppose it comes back to knowing your personality and then finding a style of trading or investing that fits with your personality. Um, because there's many ways to skin a cat and there's many ways to do this, but it's important that you try and marry the two together so that you get a, a, a fit between your personality and the style of trading or investing that you that you pursue. Um, I, on that, that I do like fast cars, so yeah. uh, I have to learn how to, <laughs> I have to, learn to invest in not the way I, I want to drive. I think that's the... <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's the lesson. Well, maybe that's that's it, right? Maybe, maybe I guess maybe you like fast cars, but you like to put them on the racetrack and drive yeah. them on a place where it's safe rather than, you know, down the street with busy pedestrians and other traffic. So it's, yeah. uh, you know, do it, but do it in a safe environment, I suppose. Which that's is, a great observation, actually. I mean, that, that's very true. So, I, I think yeah. I, I pick it up because I'm, in a way, I'm similar. I also actually quite like fast cars and I do have a bit of a heavy right foot. Um, and I've certainly noticed that in my own trading over the years is that, yes, I know I'm, I can be sensible and I should be sensible all the time. But every now and again, there's that little you know bug that comes out and just wants to push the accelerator a bit harder. And yeah, that can sometimes be where you get caught short if, you, if, you, uh, if it goes wrong. 
Again, find a style that fits your personality, I guess. Um, and if you uh, like cars, hand on to Sassel because it's quite a nice hedge for the fuel price. As yeah. Again, the hard way. Yeah, it is. I mean, I'll see just quickly on Sassel. They, it, it has done very, very well since the COVID lows, obviously, but now they've hedged their oil exposure um, for the next year, I think. So they're not really benefiting from this higher oil price. I think above $72 a barrel, if I'm not wrong, they've hedged a large chunk of their production. So you know, for those people wondering why Sassel's been lag- lagging a little bit recently, um, whilst the oil price has been continuing to move higher, that kind of goes a long way to explaining it is that they've actually put a collar in place, which effectively means that they don't fully benefit from the rise in the oil price beyond $72 a barrel. And um, obviously it's sitting, when we talk now, it's sitting up close to 85 or thereabouts. Um, and Garth, just on that, I mean, it's yeah. something else I've learned is, you know, it's okay to get back into a stock. I think yes. that's something that I have gotten wrong is, you know, you almost treat it as, as as like a girl you dated. You know, that happened, that was then, and this is now, and, and we're done now. But actually, that's not how it works. Mm. And, you know, you could have made the 100% down there. And if it's quite obvious that the thing is still running, then it's okay to kind of get back in, you know. And that's, yeah. that's again, a good lesson. I mean, you can't chase every big curve because eventually you're going to be the proud owner of, you know, Squid Game coin or whatever it was called, at, at zero, <laughs> which is now worth it. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's... It is something I've learned as well. Yeah, something I find with those type of medium to longer term positions that works quite well is if you're wanting to try and run a run a profit, you know, maybe you use something like a 50 week moving average um, just to keep you in when it's rising. But it does then, you know, if the share price does turn over and it starts to collapse, then you're going to get saved by that as some kind of a trailing stop loss on a longer term yeah. position. And you talk about EOH. We can also talk about, um, you know, Steinhoff. Um, I mean, there's stacks of others of South African stocks that were hero stocks at one point and have seen their value being absolutely decimated. And if you had applied that sort of principle on those types of shares with a you know, medium to longer term horizon, but still have some sort of an exit if it breaks below a, a metric like that, like a 50-week moving average, it kind of saves you from the big downfall, but it certainly keeps you in while the going's good. And often it'll keep you in for longer than what you might have ever imagined possible. So just Gosh, just on Steinhoff, I mean, yeah. I, something I want to actually mention. Another thing I've learned: you keep triggering my thoughts on this. So I do have a little bit. I mean, I bought it. Oh, I can't remember the end price, but it was a few months ago. Very much a spec play. Um, and I think the other thing I've realized is, you know, if you're going to play around in the speculative stuff, then don't choose just one. That was the mistake I made with EOH. Mm. There were other EOHs on the JC. I could yeah. have picked instead of deciding that EOH was my hill to die on, I could have picked five of them, sized my positions appropriately, and then the convexity works in your favor. You know, you've basically bought five options and two of them are probably going to expire worthless and three of them are going to make you laugh all day. Yeah. And that's a mistake. You know, there's no logical reason why I bought EOH, but I didn't buy NAMPAC. Mm. There's, there's really no logical reason. And as we sit here today, I ended up with a small loss on EOH and I didn't buy an NAMPAC. So, Again, for those thinking of personally, I mean, my style going forward, and, and when I see this kind of speculative stuff, get a basket of this stuff because then you're creating an option structure in your portfolio as opposed to just, you know, backing one of them. Yeah, that's right. You know, 100%. And if you, and you're right, if some of those do become multi-baggers, then they you know, they start to actually become meaningful positions in your in your portfolio over time. I did, I did that with Supergroup back in the day when the company was was absolutely poked. And um, they brought in new management. Peter Mountford came in, cleaned it up, cleaned the balance sheet, um, wrote off a whole lot of stuff, did a massive rights issue, and kind of put a small position on. And and, and it's been a phenomenal investment over the years. Um, And it's the same kind of thinking, I guess, but you've got to, you know, it it was a small position. It became a pretty meaningful position over the years. And like you say, pick a couple of them. Don't back, you know, put, don't put all your money on, on one horse, as it were. Yeah, and my most ridiculous position in my portfolio, Garth, to make you laugh. So all my stuff's on easy equities because it is so easy. And uh, when I first uh, got into easy equities, you know, if you wanted to have the thriving status, so you paid even less brokerage, I think at one point they said you needed to buy like 10 bucks worth of Purple Group, which I always thought was slightly cheeky because that's the holding company of easy equities. But right. I thought, oh, why not? Yeah. Let me put 10, 10 bucks into Purple. 
I wish I'd added a couple of zeros onto that because whilst yeah. I think the valuation of Purple Group is a little bit silly, the reality is that I think in percentage terms, my 10 bucks on Purple Group to save some brokerage <laughs> is my number one position. <laughs> in the portfolio yeah, yeah. it's yeah. why I, I managed to get a multi-bagger on 10 rand so not and that's not a typo not grand rand 10 rand, rand. 10 rand so, that's yeah, all you yeah. had to buy 10 rands with you know, yeah it, it has yeah. done very well I, I i spoke to charles savage last year on the podcast um and you know talked about what they're doing with easy equities and it's I just I love the innovation that they're doing, but I, I guess I shouldn't talk about them too much on this podcast, given that we are sponsored by IG Markets, and uh, in a way, I suppose Easy Equities are a competitor to them. But we're we're all honest about it, and Easy Equities have done a phenomenal job of educating and bringing uh, the stock market and investing to the retail public in a way that nobody else has done it. So, you know, I think it's fair to still give them a, a pat on the back for that. Yeah. And Garth, yeah. just to that, I think, you know, the one thing Easy Equities has done is it's given beginners somewhere to start. And I think for businesses like IG, that's where you then kind of end up yeah. as you work, you know, your way through the cycle. So it's actually just broadened the interest in the markets and that's to everyone's benefit. Mine, mm. yours, IG's, actually yeah. a really interesting ecosystem so Correct. Yes, it's been it's been lovely to see over the past kind of 18 months you're so spot on i mean you know a lot of the other brokers it's kind of kind of like you, you almost need to get on the, the ladder five rungs up and it's very difficult for people to do that whereas easy equities have put the first four rungs of the ladder in place for people to kind of get on board and climb up and it's 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 commendable what they've done and yeah. I, I i love seeing the fact that their uh, their client base is growing as rapidly as it is because as you say it broadens the market and it can only be good for um for the market at large but let's move away from that you, you you talked a little bit about investment themes earlier, and I want to come back to that. Uh, in, in terms of your philosophy for your bigger picture outlook, looking out into the future, what you, you mentioned pre-recording this podcast, that there are kind of three main themes that you see in coming years that you think you've got to have a piece of. Um, I'll, I'll, I won't mention them. You mention them and just take us through each of them because I think it's very interesting and it's it, it's it's a theme that I th I keep seeing coming up again and again in terms of future investing and investing for a for a future proof um, portfolio, as it were. Let's just talk about that a bit. Yeah, so it's uh, the themes that I've raised are mainly tech related, and I know everyone's going to grow now, and it's very cliche. And now we're going to talk about growth investing, but actually, that's not my style. I mean, I I shake my head at a lot of the absolutely ridiculous valuations. I mean, I am a a diet in the wool fundamental finance guy. So, you know, I, for me, I look at it and say, I don't mind potentially paying heavy multiples, but they need to be cash flows underneath this thing. This can't, it can't just be a pie in the sky scenario. So what I try to look for is tech businesses that can scale. I mean, that's critical, but that are making cash, not just now, but obviously in future, their margins will expand. And the kind of software as a service model ticks that box. It's the most fabulous business model in the world because it's recurring income. It's generally a wide range of clients. You kind of become part of their infrastructure. I mean, if we look at something like Office 365, it is mm -hmm. uncancelable. Whether it's 100 Rand a month or 150 Rand a month or 200 Rand a month, I am not price sensitive to what it costs me to have Office 365 because I actually don't have a choice. Yeah. I'm sure there's an extreme at which, you know, maybe there would be an alternative, but really there isn't really an alternative. And it's just such a such a powerful business. And what's interesting is as this kind of creator economy grows, uh, which ultimately you and I are both very much part of, mm. and um, you know the whole working from home, remote working scenario, you have a situation where individuals are becoming more empowered to take their skill set to the world. And there are more and more tools that are being built every day by very smart people all over the world to help them do that. And whenever I can invest in any of these kind of software as a service models, uh, especially when you can see, you know, the kind of stuff you're really looking for, which is high revenue growth and an expanding margin, like we've seen in Microsoft. I mean, you raised it. We, you know, Mo and I covered that in depth in, in Magic Markets Premium literally this week. So that's why I know it off the top of my head. Yeah. It's just so powerful. So that's the one theme. The second is gaming. Um, you know, I watched Mark Zuckerberg's, you know, metaverse videos and, and felt quite ill. 
But uh, <laughs> yeah, somewhere between that ex- that weirdness and what I believe is currently reality, yeah. gaming is only going to grow in popularity because the technology is only going to get better. I don't believe it's unrealistic that one day an affluent household, you know, might have a room where you kind of put on some kind of VR goggles or whatever it is, and you're not just playing a tennis game on your PlayStation anymore. You are standing on center court. You know, you feel like you are playing a game of tennis. I'm not going to bet against that technology. I think betting against technology is crazy in general. I mean, it's amazing the adoption rates. The percentages are just incredible. I mean, MTN has, uh, they released their quarterly results today, and they were saying the effective data tariff in South Africa has dropped something like 27% year on year. So data has become cheaper. Yeah. And as access to data improves and people get more and more broadband, their volume demand on data goes through the roof. And all these types of businesses just become exponentially more valuable in this kind of tech space, gaming, software as a service, the creator economy, all of that stuff's quite linked. And then the final theme stuff that I like looking at is businesses that seem to have uh, indications of winner takes all economics. And A good example of that would be something like We Buy Cars in South Africa, which is part of Transaction Capital, which is one of my core compounder positions that I just let do its thing. And, you know, as soon as you can see a big player coming in and doing something different in an industry that deserves to be disrupted, like the used car industry, Hmm. it's interesting. And you can kind of see it in their results. You know, they come in, they do something different, they make a fortune. And you can also see the runway for them to grow into a situation where it's going to be not quite winner takes all, not like a Facebook is, for example, or a LinkedIn in in terms of, you know, social media for professionals, but not far off. I mean, you can imagine big market share landing up in a business like that. So Mm. those are some of the themes that I look for. And the underpin of all of this is these businesses are powered by tech, which helps them scale. And if their model is correct, they absolutely clean up. You're listening to Talking With Traders, a podcast series brought to you by IG, a world-leading online trading and investment provider. If you haven't checked out the IG online trading platform, please do so and visit IG.com. Also, make sure you subscribe to the podcast series on your favorite podcast app or website by clicking on the subscribe button and you'll be notified weekly as we release new episodes. Let's just quickly talk about a couple of stocks in those in those buckets, though, because you, you mentioned some, but I want to press you for a few others for the benefit of the listeners. So the first theme that you mentioned was software as a service and the creator economy. We've mentioned Microsoft there. That's the most obvious one that comes to mind in terms of software as a service. Have you got any other names there that you would that, that stand out for you as uh, stocks you'd want to be owning in that space? Yeah, so two that would just jump straight into mind would be something like Adobe, yeah. um, which is very widely used by sort of the creatives of the world. Yep. Again, it's a subscription business. It was transformed into a subscription business, and that has really paid off very well. Yeah. Another one that I hold, because I just like the economics, is Karoo with all the O's, um, <laughs> yeah. or, you know, what, what was Kartrack. Yes. Um, again, subscription model. I think that if they can get their growth story right into Asia, then their margins, you know, should get pretty, should get pretty good again. Um, you know, I just like those, those sort of models, nice sticky clients. They become part of their, they become part of their client's business. And it's very hard to actually change. You know, it's the, the yeah. switching costs are high and that's, right. that's very helpful. Yeah. Okay. And the second theme um, was gaming. What, what are we looking at there in terms of stocks? Yeah, so here's something ironic. I'm actually not a gamer. So mm. interestingly enough, I think that the I think that the space is very interesting. I I mean, I barely have time to you know actually see my wife these days, let alone get a bit of gaming in. So <laughs> that that wouldn't make me very popular. Um, but there's a couple of ETFs that you can buy in that space uh, listed in the US. There's at least three of them that, um, that I can think of kind of offhand, and uh, you know they have tickers like Hero and uh, Espo and that kind of stuff. And there's generally a lot of of, of stuff there in China. So actually it hasn't had a happy few months because as Chinese sentiment has soured, so too have the valuations of a number of those sort of Chinese gaming businesses. But because for me, it's very thematic, I try to have thematic exposure to it. And that's why I'll buy an ETF in that case, um, mm. because I'm not going to try and pick, you know, which of the smartphone gaming businesses are going to make it long-term. And then on top of that, I'll have stuff like, you know, electronic arts in there or AMD, NVIDIA, 
there's a business called Corsair, which I'll add to soon because I bought in a bit early. Um, and it's fine. You know, this is the, this is my new approach. It's down like five, six percent. I actually don't care because I've bought it for the next 10 years. They do a lot of gaming hardware stuff. So at some point I might just add to that, see how much further it goes down before it kind of consolidates a base. Right. So yeah, there's lots in that space, but I think thematic ETFs are not a bad choice. Right. Okay. And then the last one was the winner takes all economics um, environment powered by tech. And you mentioned um, we buy cars in South Africa. Incidentally, I sold my cars through them when I emigrated and they've got a phenomenal business. Um, they literally, it does what it says on the tin. They come to your house literally with the intention to pay you on the spot and drive your car away. Um, it's very, very good service. And look, I don't, I, I know I didn't get the best price for my car, but from a convenience perspective, it was, it was fantastic. Um, enough marketing for we buy cars on this podcast. Now let's talk about the shares in that space. You've mentioned transaction capital. Um, any others? One that would immediately spring to my mind has got to be Amazon. That's a you know huge winner takes all in terms of the, globally. But what else are you seeing there? Yeah, so interesting with Amazon as well. A big part of that story is AWS. And actually, yeah. Google Cloud is outgrowing that thing. I mean, AWS is still the market leader. Mm. But something like Azure and Cloud is coming through quite strongly. I think, yeah, on the e-commerce side, very much so as a sort of developed market space. Um you know, sometimes the journey to winner takes all can be very painful. So, you know, like with Netflix, for example, they have burnt billions of dollars trying to become the winner takes all player. And I think in something like content creation, it's borderline impossible. You can't be a creative monopolist. There's mm -hmm. always going to be other people who come up with cool shows, cool ideas. And in a world of streaming, they can sell it to you at a pretty affordable prayer, uh, for a pretty affordable price. So I don't hold something like Netflix. I do hold Facebook. I mean, Google tried to kill Facebook and failed. So if you can survive yeah. an onslaught from Google, then you can probably survive anything. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I also have Apple. I mean, you it's all the sort of cliche big tech stuff, but they have this winner takes all vibe to them and they keep growing at 20 and 30% a year. It's like they just don't stop. So, mm. you know, that's why I look at something like that. Something like Alibaba, you know, everyone hates it now. Um, I'm sitting with a position in there because regionally it's got elements of winner takes all. You know, people forget that. It doesn't have to be winner takes all in the whole world. Something mm. like We Buy Cars is going to be a great investment in SA because it's an SA winner takes all. Yeah. Same thing with potentially Alibaba in a Chinese scenario. So, yeah, you know, it's, it's a lot of the big names because they are the winners that have kind of already taken all and just keep growing. Mm. Okay. Now, something I just want to quickly press you on is, is uh, winner takes all in the electric cars space, but not not going to be taking all for, for too much longer. And that's obviously Tesla. Um, they've been a leader in that space. They, I mean, everybody knows the story. The shares have gone absolutely nuts. I know this is one that you've not held uh, for fundamental reasons because you've always felt it's just too expensive. As we sit here right now, the share price is trading north of $1,200 a share. It's it's up oh, about a third, no, 50%, 50% in just the last month. Um, does it give you FOMO when you see something like that, that you've you know not been a part of that? And there's obviously been big money to be made in, in something that goes as parabolic as Tesla has not been in it but d d does it bother you or do you say well you've got your methods you've got your your fundamental um approach and tesla's never fit fitted those uh fundamental metrics yes i mean of course it's always a hint of jealousy around you know this person has just made 50 percent in a month and i didn't you know mm. would you rather be right or would you rather be rich but um the reality is that uh, if you don't have a system i think you're just going to chase everything that's always shiny and sometimes you're going to get it right and sometimes you're going to get murdered and uh you know i've decided to just stick to my fundamentals that's why i don't have crypto it's because i wouldn't know how to value any of those coins because no one really does right yeah they just trade technicals on this stuff and i'm i have a lot of respect you know for your world goth i do like i think the technical stuff is super interesting and i try to learn about it every time i can but i also know that for me my whole background has always been in how the business actually makes money. So I just can't divorce myself from that, no matter 
how I try. And the irony of it all is if you bought Ford or Tesla at the start of this year, you've made more money in Ford. As yeah. much as Tesla's like caught up a lot in the last month, it's still nowhere near what Ford has done. Why? Because Ford has also got an EV strategy, a good one, and the valuation was sensible, whereas Tesla's valuation is bonkers. I mean, this latest rally is based on a half decent quarterly result and a you know a big order from a car rental company. I mean, it's just it's just incredible. So yeah, talking about winner takes all, Tesla's valued as though in a few years from now, you, me, and everyone we know is going to have a Tesla. And we have, what is it, 120 years of the car to demonstrate to us that actually people have different consumer preferences. You know, winner-takes-all economics requires a network effect like Facebook. You're on Facebook because everyone you know is on Facebook, so why would you have bothered to change to Google Plus? And Google learned that the hard way. But with Tesla, I don't believe there's a network effect. In fact, people like to be different. They want to have something different to their mates, to their neighbors. So that's why we have all these car companies in the world. 120 years, whatever it is, of consumer preferences have created that world. And I just don't understand why, just because the engine is now electric, suddenly that's all going to change. I don't get it. And, uh, you know, Tesla's valuation has nothing to do with its financial fundamentals. And for that reason, for me, it's it's gambling um, at any price. You know, the valuation of $1,200 is no more ridiculous than $800. It may as well be $2,000. I mean, there's no... There's no grounding for any of these numbers. So it's 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 a trading game. It's momentum. It's it's not the stuff that I do. And, uh, you know, I still think that people are going to get hurt. But, I mean, who knows? You know, if everyone just keeps believing in this thing for the rest of time, then they won't. The market is willing buyer, willing seller. And if there's enough buyers who, you know, believe that Musk is saving the planet, then it'll just carry on. Yeah. I mean, what's going on recently is, as you said, the quarterly numbers were okay and the um, and the order from Hertz to buy 100,000 cars. And that's pushed the stock price up. But it also seems from everything I've read that there's an enormous amount of options activity taking place in, in Tesla. Yeah. Um, and, and for sort of the uninitiated listener, I guess, if I could try and explain it very, very carefully. The thinking goes that you buy a call option on a stock. A call option gives you the right, but not the obligation to buy the stock at a particular price at some date in the future, irrespective of how high or low the price is. Obviously, if it's below the strike price, you're not going to exercise the option. But if it's above the strike price, you then have the option to buy the stock at that strike price that you'd agreed in the beginning. That's what a call option is. Um and what appears to be happening is that the volume of call option buying in Tesla has gone absolutely bananas in the last couple of weeks. Well, not the last couple of weeks, it's been bananas for a while, but it's gone, you know, especially, especially bananas in the last two weeks or so since that news of the Hertz uh, order came through. And in essence, what, what happens is the market makers who provide the options or who, who, who make a market in the options then have to go into the physical market and actually buy the physical shares. Because if the people who bought the call options later decide they want to exercise those options, then the, uh, the person on the opposite side of the contract, which is the market maker, effectively has to have the shares to sell to the call option buyer. So what you end up with is a situation where you've kind of got the tail wagging the dog. The fact that there's been such aggressive buying in call options in the stock has forced the market makers to buy the stock, and that's pushed the share price up to stratospheric levels. Now, I know, um, Mr. Ghost, you wrote a bit about uh, Bill Huang and Archegos, the, the hedge fund slash family office that went bang a couple of months ago. And effectively, what they were doing is exactly this, exactly what's happening with Tesla. They were buying options on a variety of different stocks and pushing those share prices up until eventually they ran out of road. And, and then those share prices came collapsing down. And we think about things like um, Tencent Music Entertainment was one of them. Um, Discovery, uh, not the Discovery in South Africa, another one offshore, was another one of those stocks. I mean, it, as you say, there's a risk that people get hurt here at some point. And this, doesn't, this to me does kind of smack of euphoria. Surely it can't end well. Uh, I mean, it can't. Well, <laughs> I've been saying that for a few hundred dollars worth of share price. So, yeah. I mean, it is for a lot of people, it has ended very well. But uh, 
what I will say is I just avoid this stuff. So I I think that shorting it can be suicide. Yeah. There are a hundred million reasons to short Tesla, like endless reasons to short Tesla, but you could have shorted it at 800 and you would not have had your face literally ripped off. So yeah. with this stuff, I just get out the way. I just view it as highly speculative stuff. I, I completely agree with you on the whole, you know, the call options, pushing this thing, the whole shebang. And, you know, it, it looks... It looks amazing because the rise can be so meteoric, but people forget what happened to the share price before that. So there's no question that over a couple of years, Tesla has been a great buy, obviously. Mm. But it's going to be interesting to see, you know, if you buy in now at 1200, what return can you possibly expect over the next two, three years? You know, you could yeah. well go backwards, heavily backwards, yeah. having bought Tesla as this amazing cult company. So, mm. you know, something I write about all the time in Go Smell, I mean, as you've seen, Goss, is don't forget about the valuation. The investment return is a function of two things, the company you buy and what you pay for it. And no matter how great the company is, if you overpay, you're going to have a bad time. If you buy a relatively rubbishy company that you pay the right price, you can still have a great return. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listeners, don't uh, ever accuse us of being one-sided in terms of the guests we get on here because you've heard the finance ghosts arguments. And last week you heard Bruce Main who's the biggest Tesla bull in, in the world. So there you go. And that's what makes a market at the end of the day. People have different yeah. views. Some are you know bullish, some are not. And that's what makes a market at the end of the day. Exactly. Let's move away from all of this and just get back to your story a little bit. Um, you took, as we said earlier, you, you took a bold step uh, last year to quit your safe corporate job with a nice cushy salary and you decided to make the finance ghost your full-time endeavor and start your and make it a full-time business. You you did what a lot of the, uh, the 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 coaches, I guess, will will say is that you started your side hustle as a side hustle whilst you still had the safety of a corporate job and a nice salary every month. And ultimately, you could see that what you're doing with the finance ghost is taking off. And at that point, you decided it was safe to cut the strings loose from the corporate world and go full full on with your in, in, um, your entrepreneurial ambitions. And and I, I applaud you for that. I salute you. I think well done. Um, I've done it, and I, I completely applaud anybody who has the balls to do it and take on the the big wide world of being an entrepreneur, particularly in South Africa, which is not an easy environment. Um, but having said that, I mean, what would you? What a bit of advice would you give to anybody who's considering doing the same thing? Not exactly what you've done, but uh, you know, quitting their job to start a business. So yeah. <laughs> I, uh, it, it's the hardest path in the world. And I think that unless the thought of staying in corporate makes you ill in the morning, you probably need to think quite carefully about it because the entrepreneurial life is very glamorous 10 years down the line when you've made a lot of money and uh, you know, you're going overseas four times a year and you have no one to report to. But the initial couple of years, and Garth, I'm sure you'll echo this, is horrific. I mean, it really is. You know, You don't see your friends anymore. You don't, uh, you don't phone your mom, you don't hang out with your wife, you barely see your, you know, your toddlers kind of tugging at your, your, <laughs> your shorts while you're working away at some horrible hour. It's hectic. And uh, I think that the biggest thing is family support is key. I mean, your family has got to buy into what you are trying to do because otherwise you're going to fail and you're going to ruin relationships along the way. It's borderline a, a guarantee. And assuming you have this burning desire where the thought of, staying in corporate genuinely depresses you as it did for me genuinely depressed me that's the that's how strong the driver has to be to actually get out of it out mm. of a situation like that mm. and you've got the family support then you know if you've got those two ingredients then i think the next thing is you've got to give yourself the best possible chance to succeed so if you can start it while you're still in your day job without getting yourself into trouble and certainly without doing anything you know ethically wrong then, and, and, and to be clear, I never wrote about the industry that I was working in at the time yeah. when I was side gigging as a ghost. So I was very, very clear on that, kept my nose completely clean. Mm. Um, now that's critical. You, you've got to be careful with that kind of stuff and you've got to have your integrity intact. And then you build the safety net, the financial safety net. And, you know, you cut the expenses you can cut. You bring in the sources of income that you can find. And I think in the beginning, you mustn't be too proud. Um, you know, the... At the moment, I'm very lucky. I get to write for leading publications. A lot of people are reading my stuff now. It wasn't like that when I started. 
Mm. So when I started out, the reason I went with the name Finance Ghost is because I was actually ghost writing for people. I had a few wealth managers who I was writing for, and then, you know, the content would go out to their client base as though they had written it, but it was actually me. I always did it, you know, with their input. So it wasn't like completely ridiculous, mm. but, um, you know, that's a very different business to writing a financial mail column, for example. So yes. when you start, you can't be too proud. You need to do what you need to do to hustle, to bring the money in. My favorite story or one of my best examples of this is, is Phil Knight when he started Nike. Yeah. He, and it's a, if you haven't read Shoe Dog, it is a wonderful, mm. wonderful story. Brilliant. And book. he had a job as an accountant. And, yeah. you know, all those jokes of selling the shoes out the boot of his car, all true. He had an, he worked as an accountant the whole way through. And there are many times in that book where he talks about how he basically would have run out of money if he didn't have the day job. Nike wouldn't probably wouldn't exist today if Phil Knight had left his job, you know, thrown caution to the wind, the YOLO approach that, that someone like a Richard Branson puts out there. And a lot of these kind of Instagram celebrity entrepreneurs, a lot of that is utter nonsense. You need extreme luck in those situations. The survivorship bias that you're seeing on Instagram and the like is ridiculous. Mm. So, you know, you've really got to just give yourself the best possible chance, not be too proud. And I do a lot of work that is not public. You know, I still do a lot of like financial consulting stuff. I help someone out with an information memorandum the last few weeks. I do some private equity work. You know, even today, the finance ghost, as great as it's been, is not yet, you know, at the size where it would have fully replaced my corporate salary. I'm still supplementing it. I'm still doing crazy hours, weekends, nights, the whole shebang. So, mm. yeah, I mean, that's, I suppose that's a lot that I've talked about there, but uh, there's yeah. a lot to think about when you want to do this. Absolutely. Well, I mean, that, that leads me to my next question. You're doing such a lot of stuff. Do you ever sleep? I suppose ghosts don't sleep. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, it's been a, it's been a bit crazy. I mean, I actually, funnily enough in the last month, I, I had to fire my first client, which was the strangest thing for me. You know, I never grew up with money. It's, it's very weird to me to say no to someone willing to pay you for something, mm. but as a business grows, you have to have the maturity to recognize when you need to drop certain service offerings and focus on others. And uh, that's a big mindset shift. And it, it comes from a place of realizing that a schedule just becomes entirely unsustainable for your own health, for your family relationships and everything else that comes with it. But what's actually quite good with that as well is it forces you to focus on the stuff that can scale. And long-term, it makes you a better entrepreneur because instead of chasing every cent, you're chasing the big opportunities. And if you get them right, then, you know, and the riches of the world are yours. So. Yeah, fantastic. Now, it's the last question. It's, uh, we're recording this uh, in the week of Halloween. Halloween's just been. And in the week past, my kids would uh, you know, run around with a sheet over their head pretending to be a ghost. And then, of course, they would reveal themselves and surprise me. Are you ever going to pull the sheet off and reveal yourself? So the answer is no. And the reason is simply that in the past 18 months, the finance ghost as a purple, ridiculous cartoon has become a brand that people actually know, which for me is still quite surreal, to be honest, but it's true. And in a world of, you know, everyone in finance is kind of like, here's my face, I have a tie, you know, nice shirt, whatever the case may be. I have this purple cartoon. And for me, it is amazing that it's gotten to a place where people realize that behind this very playful facade, which actually reflects my personality to a very great extent, is someone that should be taken maybe seriously. You know, there's at least got some experience and some knowledge in the space and, and an opinion that's possibly sometimes worth listening to. And to build that has been a big journey. And I wouldn't ruin it by saying, oh, hang on, actually, world, you know, this is me this whole time. Let's get rid of the purple ghost. Let me just be me. I just think that it would ruin 18 months worth of, of building a really cool, playful brand. I mean, I think one of my absolute highlights was when the financial mail when rob rose contacted me and said listen we'd like you to actually like, come into the main magazine do a weekly column for us and all of their you know all of their bios all of their pictures are all in sort of black and white and there's this bright purple ghost uh, you know as my little <laughs> avatar there um in the column and that that for me is just the coolest thing in the world you know i always used to read financial mail i read the campus version when i was in varsity and here we are today with this little purple cartoon in the sort of money section and, uh, you know, that, that, that for me just brings me an enormous amount of joy. And I've learned as an entrepreneur late at night when you're tired 
and uh, and you're feeling slightly cutful to use a South African term you may not have heard in a while. Um, <laughs> you need that stuff. You need yeah. that stuff to to keep you going. So yeah, yeah the, the answer is no. I will remain a I will remain a ghost. Yeah. Well, it's a it's a phenomenal brand that you're creating, and and I must say I just I love your work. As I say, you you've. It's quality and quantity. Uh, I don't know how you produce so much quality work. It, it really is impressive. Uh, and listeners who, if they don't know you already, they, you know, best go to the, the Finance Ghost um, to the website, follow you on Twitter. Uh, and you, you've started this new uh, premium podcast service. It's Magic Markets Premium. I've subscribed. It's 99 Rand a month. It's for, at that price. It's you. You referred to it as a no-brainer in the email that you sent out. It is a no-brainer. It's for ninety-nine rand a month. You get four podcasts per month. Top top quality analysis, thought leadership from the finance ghost and from Mohammed Nala, uh, who who's in Canada. Um, yeah, it's it's brilliant. All of the work that you're doing is fantastic, and I applaud you. And it's been really. Fantastic to have you back on the podcast again a year later and to see the progress that you've made over the last year. Keep it up. I know we'll be talking more um, off air and we'll keep in contact, but I love your work and keep at it. Uh, it's, it's good stuff that you're doing. Yeah, God, thank you. And likewise, and thank you for, uh, for this show because I think it, it, it's great in that it really lets people talk about the real world. It's, it's behind the stuff, behind all the numbers, behind all the Twitter profiles, behind the spreadsheets. There's real people and they go through a lot of emotions in the markets. And I think it's wonderful that you you give that a platform. So thank you. Awesome. All right. Well, let's let's end it there. It's been super speaking to you and I'm sure we'll catch up again. If not sooner, then maybe in another year from now. Thank you, Garth. Cheers. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Talking With Traders, brought to you by IG, a world-leading CFD provider. We really are privileged to have such a leader in the field of online trading involved in this series. Please follow us on Facebook and engage with us there. And a reminder to make sure you subscribe to this series by clicking on the subscribe button on your favorite podcast app. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd also appreciate if you'd leave a review on the app too. Till next time.